Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. First Peter chapter 1, we're looking again at the first two verses. Last week, uh, we looked at verse 1, where Peter addresses his readers as those who are elect by God, that is, those who are chosen um, by God out of the depths of His sovereign will, and they are chosen to be exiles in the world, that is, chosen to be foreign to be strangers in the land in which they live, and that by God's design, by His election, they have been dispersed and scattered throughout the world. And we tried to suggest that this is who we are. We are elect of God. We are exiles. We are strangers. We are foreigners. And we've been scattered throughout the world for the mission of sharing Christ. Now, one of the things that comes to me immediately on that is that it's not much fun being a stranger and a foreigner in somebody else's land. I want to be someplace where I speak the language. I want to be someplace where I understand the customs. I want to be someplace where if I use the wrong word, teenagers don't laugh at me behind my back because I have, I have made some kind of societal faux pas. I mean, I, I want to be comfortable. I, I, I want to know the lingo, and I want to know the customs. I don't want to be found doing the wrong thing. I don't want to embarrass myself. So I really uh, can find it uncomfortable to live constantly as a stranger in a foreign land. And when it comes to living as a Christian, as an exile, a stranger in the world, sometimes we don't like that very much. The world has intimidated us. It is afraid to stand out. You know, we still have this adolescent thing where we want to belong, have to belong. And in order to be me, I will be just like every other you out there. I mean, this, this is the way we're geared as human beings. We gravitate to be like the people around us, and we think there's something wrong with us if we're not accepted by other people. But Peter said you are called to be an exile. In point of fact, you are called to be a stranger. The world really should not know what to do with you. You really should feel out of place. Your language really should be different, not just in the vocabulary, and certainly that's true. Certainly that's one area where a lot of us as Christians need to really think hard and apply our minds so that our vocabulary is brought into line with who God is and the holiness of God. The world doesn't like that, and we're uncomfortable with it. And then there are customs, and then we're left out, and the office politics moves beyond us, and the neighborhoods aren't quite sure they want us. And after a while, we're not sure we want to be in exile in a foreign land. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that we have at least three great reasons to be excited about living as an exile. My prayer, my hope is that when we're done with our time looking at First Peter, 
this morning, that we will have an excitement within us that, that says, I, I just want to be so odd to the world that I make sense to God. So that we have this, this excitement about living as exiles in a strange land. That's really the, the uh, theme, if you will, of the entire letter of 1 Peter, living as exiles in a strange land. And this morning, I want for us to try and uh, discern within this scripture at least three reasons why we should be excited about living as exiles. The first one is found in verse 3. And if you'll read that with me, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In fact, if, if you look at the, uh, at, at the grammar of these two verses, you could almost read it this way. Uh, those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. To those who are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. To those who are exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Let me suggest to you that we ought to be excited about being exiles in the world because those of us who live as exiles for God are living in the fullness of who God is. By now you know that the Trinity is not some uh, peripheral doctrine. It's not out on the edges of Christian faith. By now you know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is not just some strange way of talking about God that we trot out right after the offering as we sing the doxology. By now you know that the Trinity is not just something that specialists and theologians believe, but the rest of us can get by without it, thank you very much. By now you know that the Trinity, that God is one in three persons, is at the very heart of who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. Without this biblical truth taught to us in Scripture that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit, not three gods, one God and three persons. Without that truth, our salvation falls apart. And without that truth, then we have no hope. Here's why. Some people would just want to believe in God and stuff. You know, why do we need to... Uh, to, to have all this theological mumbo-jumbo going on. Why do we need to talk about Jesus as God, the Holy Spirit as God, uh, one God, three persons? Here's why. God is infinitely beyond you. God is so far beyond you, you can't even get to the spot where you can begin thinking about perhaps finding out and figuring out a way to start the investigation so you might learn a little bit that would give you a clue about where to start in knowing God. That's how far beyond us he is. God is infinitely beyond us. And even if we were perfect creatures, which we are not, we could not know God in his infinite mystery. But because of our sin, we especially cannot know God. Because of our sin, there is a gulf between us and God that cannot be bridged by human works and cannot be bridged by any righteousness of our own. It's a gulf that we could never get across by any effort on our part. We are not only unable to know God, we are separated from God. So if all you want is God, you can't get there. You can't know him because there's nothing to deal with your sin. 
We need a mediator. We need someone who will bring us to God. Now, the one who brings us to God cannot be somebody just like us who is just mere human being. In other words, a Plato, Aristotle. I was going to say Nietzsche, but that just doesn't fit right now. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it, some philosopher can't bring us to God because he's got exactly the same problem we've got. There's no human priest that can bring us because he's got the same problem we have. In order to bridge the gap between us and God, we need God to bridge the gap. And so out of the depths of his loving kindness and mercy toward us, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Fully man so that he might relate to us and dive in our place. Fully God so that he might bring us unto the Father. You see, without the mediator, without the Son, you cannot know the Father. And so the Father sends the Son. But you know, a lot of people saw Jesus. A lot of people in the days of his flesh saw him walking through the hills of Palestine, listened to him teach, saw the miracles, and it never dawned on him that this is the Son of God. Many, many people watched the crucifixion. They saw his blood poured out. They saw him die. It never dawned on them that this is the Son of God who has died for our sins. Many people heard the message of the resurrection, thought it was silly, perhaps even heard about the empty tomb, may have investigated, came up with all kinds of explanations, none of which were that the Father had raised the Son from the dead. In other words, the fact of who Jesus is was apparent and in the world, but people did not see it until the Holy Spirit of God awakened the heart, opened the eyes, filled the mind, and brought us to the cross that we might know Jesus Christ as Lord, the Savior, died for our sins, raised on our behalf, in whom we have everlasting life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you simply will not know that unless God does it. And that's God the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm saying that without the Trinity... Without Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we simply cannot know God at all. It's always been that way. Th this is the gospel message. Let me see if I can uh, point that out to you. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Acts chapter 10. Just very quickly want to read this. Get it in front of you. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching in the home of Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. And Peter, as a Jew, knew that uh, Gentiles were, were not as acceptable to God as Jews were. And so Peter thought that, well, in the gospel, uh, you, you have to become a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian. God had sent him a vision and told Peter, he said, look, anybody I've created, don't call them unclean. This gospel's for everybody. And when Cornelius asked, you go to that house and you preach. And so Peter went to the home of, of, of Cornelius, and he preached the gospel. Now, this is the sermon. I'm going to read Peter's entire sermon. It's shorter than mine but he was better at it. Uh, Acts 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Wait a minute. You don't just say Lord of all about a man. I mean, can you imagine how silly it would be? I mean, we would know it was silly if someone said, Napoleon Bonaparte, Lord of all. Yeah, right. Little forgotten island somewhere in the South Atlantic for a while. Or, or if we said, you know, some philosopher, pick a different one. Spinoza. I don't know why these things are coming to me. You know, Spinoza, Lord of all. Yeah, that's silly. Peter says, Jesus Christ, Lord of all. Now, that can only be true if Jesus Christ is God. Only God is Lord of all. I mean, this is just the, the, the heart of it. So, here we find in the opening pages of the history of the church, Peter preaching, establishing, asserting the deity of Christ, Jesus Christ, Lord of all. It gets better and better. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. God the Father anointed Jesus Christ, whom he has just said is Lord of all, with the Holy Spirit and with power. Circle the verse in the margin, capital T, stands for Trinity. Right there. So, uh, Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit by God the Father. He went about doing good and healing all those who, oppressed, who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the dead. I'm sorry, we're stopping here. We're moving over here to a different sermon entirely. Folks, the next time you think God can't help you and God can't deal with your life, just look at this verse, but God raised him from the dead. And if God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and he did, the rest of your life is child's play. Amen. You know. And so you put him to death, Peter says, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter has been preaching Jesus, preaching Jesus. He said, this Jesus came. The Father anointed him with the power of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus you crucified. God raised him from the dead. The scriptures, the prophets all spoke about this Jesus, prophesied about Jesus. So Jesus is at the very heart, the very center of this sermon. You got that? And here's what happens. While Peter was still saying things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I mean, that was the intended outcome. When you preach Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls upon the audience and brings those to repentance whom God chooses. And so as the word goes out, it's not the, the task of some human preacher to convince or persuade you. It is rather the task of the human heart to surrender to the movement of the Holy Spirit and come to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
So you have Peter talking about Jesus, whom God the Father sent, and now the Holy Spirit descends and falls upon this audience. And the believers, I think I'm in verse 45. Thank you. These letters are just awfully small. And the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. You see, you don't have salvation without the Holy Spirit. Where did we get this idea that you can be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? I mean, Baptists, we used to be terrible about this, mostly because somebody else was down the road singing songs and raising their hands. John, I want you to know I did one of these. Okay? You didn't see it, but God did. All right. It's a start. You know, but we got this strange idea that well, if the Pentecostals are doing it, we better be quiet about it. Here it is in the Scripture. You believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is poured out on you. That's what salvation is all about. So you see what the gospel is. The gospel is about God the Father sending God the Son so that the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, will be poured out into your life. So you're already living in the Trinity. That's what I meant a moment ago when I said as an exile in this land, you are living in the fullness of who God is because as a believer in Jesus Christ, your faith is in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, one faith. Well, let's just, just finish this. Uh, they were amazed, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God, and then Peter declared, can anyone withhold uh, water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Peter sees the Holy Spirit. This is really beautiful. He sees the Holy Spirit, and then he says, well, let's baptize them. So how does he baptize them? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see the Trinity just flowing through that passage? He preaches Jesus. They get the Spirit. He says, oh, they got the Spirit. Let's baptize them in the name of Jesus. There's a oneness there. So it is impossible to be a Christian apart from the three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, when we go to verse 3 in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, circle, highlighted, underlined, marked in the margin, the Trinity. That's why we're compelled to the doctrine of the Trinity. Verses like this. And as a believer in Christ, walking through the world, engaging your environment with the world hostile to you because it was hostile to, to, to Christ, you are walking and living and moving in the fullness of who God is. Some would just want God, all they've got is a philosophy. Some would want just Jesus, all they've got is a teacher. Some would want just the Spirit, all they've got is enthusiasm and emotionalism. But God in His grace has given to us the fullness of who He is. Everything about Him is ours. Now, this is a deep mystery. This, this is a profoundly uh, a mystery to us. But that's why we're excited about living as exiles. That's why it doesn't bother us when the world is a little bit hostile. 
That's why it doesn't bother us when the world says you don't belong here. That's right, we don't. That's why it it doesn't bother us when, when the persecution comes because we know the fullness of God by the marvelous nature of his grace has brought us to know him. So that's reason enough. I think that's reason enough to be excited about living as an exile in the world, but there's more. Again, verse 2, and reading it that we are elect. We are chosen exiles, foreigners, aliens. We are chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. You see, living as an exile means living in the fullness of what God does. We are chosen, we're exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, again, we'll let the, the, the uh, theologians and the philosophers talk back and forth about, uh, about the relationship of the foreknowledge of God and the free will that he gives to us. Uh, we'll let them talk about how can God know something's going to happen and, and people not have the, the, the ability to choose not to do it. And if they did something that God didn't know, then he didn't know it. He was wrong. You know, we'll let them do that. Here's what the readers of this letter thought, the very first readers. They said, that's right, we've read the Old Testament. We've read the prophets. And there God revealed his knowledge of the nation and the course of history. When God reveals himself, he has a perfect understanding, a perfect knowledge of what's about to take place. And as we are now exiles, we are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. It didn't catch him by surprise. It's not as though God looked down and said, I had no idea those Christians in Waldorf were going to be so different that the world wouldn't like them. It's not as though he looks down on your life and he says, I had no idea that you would be persecuted for your faith. It never dawned on me that once you accepted Jesus that things would actually get harder with your family and harder with your work and harder with with the the people that, that surround you in your society. I had no idea these things would happen. No, we were elect by the foreknowledge of God. This is entirely what he knew. Now, understand that God's foreknowledge is not a passive thing. It's not as though God knows things because he observed them. We know things because we either saw them or they were taught to us. Somebody had to pry open our heads and cram the knowledge into us before we knew anything. That's sort of a passive kind of knowledge. Whatever we know is because we had to learn it. God does not have foreknowledge because he learned what would happen. God has foreknowledge because he is the creator and the author of all and it doesn't happen outside of his purpose. Now, when you think of foreknowledge that way, and you are, when you think of foreknowledge as the active knowledge that God has of how he has created the universe and guided the the course of history, when you realize that the foreknowledge talks about God who is so um, beyond us that, that his knowledge of us is based upon his sovereignty over us, that make any sense? Not yesterday. When you think of foreknowledge that way, what we're talking about is God's plan and design. We are elect according to God's design and purpose. And however life is rolling and treating us, God knows exactly how to fit it in to the great complex of his will for us. You know, um, um, 
sort of think about it as, as uh, weather computers. Weather computers, yes. Weather computers like really, rig, really big computers. And you load in a lot of data about where the fronts are and what the temperatures are and the pressures and the currents and this and the that. And you put it together and then you flip a switch and the thing just starts rolling along. And after about um, uh, a, a few minutes, you, you open it up and you say, ah, here's the prediction of the weather. Here's exactly where, where the storm is going to be. Here's exactly where uh, the, the fronts are going to be. Here's exactly where the, uh, the, what the temperature is going to be because the computer had all this data loaded into it. You know, you get these massive computers with 40 million months bites. Uh, okay, you're not listening. Folks, you can't even predict the weather that way. There's no computer in the world that can store enough data. You know, you know how much data you would have to store in a computer in order to accur accurately predict the weather? The entire universe. That, that's what you'd have to have because the, the variables are so vast. And a small variable, heard about the butterfly effect, okay, you just can't track it. Folks, oh, by the way, this is where chaos theory comes from. God does not have foreknowledge based on his speculative computer model. God has foreknowledge because he is sovereign over all. And absolutely everything is under his sway. So, we're elect by God, and he knows exactly where we fit in. When, when, when this happens in our life, he knows exactly how to fit it in a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, if Jesus tarries. And he knows how to take what somebody was doing in some obscure part of mid, uh, medieval uh, Europe, and he knows how that fits into our lives today. We, we can't even imagine it, but God has it all put together. And that's why we're excited about living for him and living as exiles in this world. Because we are chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Look at the next one. To those who are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification, big word, Latin and everything, uh, just means being made holy. It says you were elect in the process of being made holy by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we don't like that. You know, oh, I'm not holy. I'm just a regular guy. You know, uh, don't call me holy. I'm, I'm not a holy Joe. Uh, uh, just, you know, don't, don't say that about me. In point of fact, that's why God saved you, that you would be holy unto him, separated unto him, different, apart from the rest, and set apart unto God. Holiness is the purpose for our creation because when when, when God created us, he created us for his glory. How do we glorify the Father? We glorify the Father by reflecting him to himself. How do we do that? By showing his holiness. And when his holiness becomes a reality in our lives, then we have something to, to, to reflect back to God and give him praise, honor, and glory. Why did Jesus save you? It was so that you would glorify the Father. How do you do that? By living a holy life a holy and a devout life. How do you live a holy and devout life? By being like Jesus. I mean, it just makes sense. You were created, you were saved to be holy unto God. And so, uh, Peter says, you're, you're elect, you were chosen, and you're an exile, but that's for the process of sanctification. 
That's so that you can be made holy and know the holiness of God in your own life in a real way. We have this idea that, that holiness is for a bunch of monks on a mountainside or in a monastery. We have this idea that holiness is all about being uh, just, just ethereal, you know, walking about six inches off the ground, saying spooky things. You know, sometimes my mind thinks of a joke in the middle of a sermon, and the Holy Spirit says, don't use it. <laughs> but it was good. <laughs> okay. But sanctification is not just for a few superstar Christians. This is the normal expectation of the gospel. It's the normal expectation that our language would be holy. It's a normal expectation that the vulgarities and profanities of our world would not be a part of our speech. It's a normal expectation that our actions would be different and that we would do crazy things like forgive people 70 times, seven times, and then lose count and start all over again. It is a normal expectation that that one person in our in our circle who is unlovely and unlovable and really is just hard to get along with. We're going the extra mile. We're turning the cheek. We're offering the, the coat as well as the shirt. I mean, that's the normal expectation that we would live lives of absolute holiness. Now, let me give you a way to frustrate your life. Uh, you don't have enough ways to frustrate your life, so let me give you another one. Just in case you wake up one morning and you're not frustrated and you want to be. Here's how to frustrate your life. Just try to be holy. Just try it. Just get up the mor in the morning and say, I'm going to love everybody. I'm going to love everybody. You won't get past the stoplight out of your development. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to lose my temper. You're going to lose your temper at the guy who made you lose your temper. I mean, it's just going to happen. I mean, if you want to frustrate yourself, just try to live the holy life by yourself. What does the Scripture say? You are an elect exile in the sanctification of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit of God. It was one of the most liberating moments in my Christian walk when I realized I didn't have to be good. The Holy Spirit would be good in me if I would just surrender to Him. If you want to frustrate yourself, just try it on your own. But if you want to know the glory of Christian living, then just uh, and open up your life and embrace the work of the Holy Spirit and rejoice every time the Spirit speaks and moves and leads and, and just be absolutely obedient to what the Spirit would tell you to do because this is our calling as exiles in a strange land. So um, that, that's another reason to be just absolutely thrilled and excited about being an exile. It's because that's how God is making us holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Number three. Not number three, but number th 2A, 2C. Whatever. To those who are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Um, start at the back end of that. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus is an image that's taken from the sacrificial system where the sacrifice, uh, the blood of the sacrifice was taken and it was sprinkled on, on, on the altar, and, and that, that was the, the manifestation 
of uh, forgiveness for the people. And the sacrifice system of the Old Testament was a prefigure of Christ and was a way to declare and proclaim the sacrificial death of Christ on our behalf. The blood of bulls and goats could never save you. They all knew that. Everybody in the Old Testament knew that when they were on, on a good day. But Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, was sacrificed for us and his blood was poured out and his blood has been sprinkled that we might be forgiven of our sins. And here's all you have to do to know forgiveness this morning. Here's all you have to do to know salvation this morning is just trust him. Just trust him. Trust in the promise of God that if you come to the foot of the cross and you, and you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit moves your heart and brings you into the orbit of the family, you'll be saved. It's just that simple, just trust him. So that's what the sprinkling of the blood means. It means as, as exiles... Uh, we, we, we're living in exile because of that sprinkling, because of the cross, and we just trust in the promises of God. Now, the front part of that says that we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ. That is, so that we would do what he told us to do, be what he told us to be. Jesus Christ is our example. Later on, people would say that Christ has given us an example that we should walk in his steps. So we live in obedience to Christ. Now, what have we talked about? The sprinkling of the blood. You trust him. The example of Christ, you obey him. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And as exiles, we were called to that. We were called to um, to trust and to obey Jesus Christ. We, we really need to spend more time on that. Uh, time is starting to elude us, but um, it, it, it's a great reason to rejoice and to get excited about being in exile in a strange land because we are living by faith in Jesus Christ. We are following his example. We are trusting him for all things. So those are pretty good reasons to be excited about being in exile. Because we live in the fullness of who God is and we live in the fullness of what God does. But let me give you one other thing. We live in the fullness of how God does it. Look at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, this is just the normal way to start a letter. I mean, the, the Christians started their letters this way all the time. Grace and peace to you. And, and, and you can take it that way that Peter's just saying, you know, to the elect exiles of the dispersion who know uh, and, and live in the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit and in the uh, obedience to Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Hello. You know, that could be it. But understand, this is Peter. Peter was with the disciples when Jesus came to them. And he said, peace be to you. Jesus said to them, peace be to you. And then he said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. I don't think the word peace ever meant the same thing to Peter ever again. I think every time he heard that word peace, it went straight to the magnificence of how Jesus gives us and brings us peace. And that word grace, you can't ignore that word grace. Great sounding word. You know, when you think about the grace of God, 
that he's done all this out of the depths of his mercy and love for us. And he has given us all this because of who he is and, and, and just the majesty of his, of his character and his nature. And you start to think about grace. It just becomes a sweet sound when you say it. Because when you think about grace that way, you're just overwhelmed with what God had to do to save a wretch like me. To think about such grace that my testimony today is that once I was lost, but now I'm found. And I came into this world a child of wrath and I was blind. But God opened my eyes by the power of his Holy Spirit and now I see. I'm telling you, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace that taught me that I needed to fear a holy, righteous God who is not blind to our sin nor indifferent to our unrighteousness. It was grace, the grace of God, that taught me to fear God, but it was the grace of God by which that fear of death that would paralyze me was relieved. Oh, the precious moment. Can you remember the moment in your life? That precious moment when the grace appeared, it was already working. But you became aware of the grace the very moment you first believed. And now in our lives, we go through many, many things. We go through many dangers, many hard toils. And the devil's setting out a snare every every few feet along the path. But we've come this far. We've gotten this far. And that's been the grace of God. And what we know, because he is the God with foreknowledge, the God who sanctifies, and the God who has sprinkled us with the blood of the Lamb, this God will, by his grace, bring us home. Amazing grace. That's how God works. And that's why it's exciting to be an exile in the world. That's why it's exciting to be, to be identified with Christ so that we are strangers and aliens in this world because we live in the fullness of who God is, in the fullness of what God does, and in the fullness of how he does it. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, it is incredible to us that we are ever so indifferent to you. We read this in Scripture, and it's an amazement to us that we can be so blasé, treat you like an option, give you the leftovers of our lives. And so, Father, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would implant your word in every heart, And that realizing the magnitude of grace that has brought us to where we are from where we were, Father, that we would give you absolutely everything. And then rejoice in the path, rejoice in the journey. That yes, we are exiles and aliens and strangers on earth, but we have a home where we belong with you. Father, let your spirit work in our midst in these next few moments as we sing our closing song. Father, let your spirit move hearts to receive Christ. 
move lives to rededicate to you, that you would be glorified by the power of your Spirit in the name of your Son. Amen.